welcome to This is the End. I am your host, the pop mythologist. For those of you who have seen the movie Twister, the reference in those opening sound effects is hopefully obvious. For those of you who haven't seen it, or if it's been too long since you've seen it, maybe, hopefully, I can convince you in today's episode to rewatch it for reasons that I will discuss. Just a really quick shout out to my friends over at Breaking Down Collapse. Thank you for having me on recently. I am honored to be in this fight with you. And I look forward to the next time when I can embarrass you by exposing your complete lack of pop culture knowledge. <laughs> I am totally just kidding, obviously. For those of you listening who are interested in the intersections of pop culture and collapse, I recommend you listen to Breaking Down Collapse episode 70, in which Corey and Kellen were nice enough to have me on. We had a lot of fun, and I think you'll enjoy it. All right, if you've listened to other episodes of this podcast, then you know it's a pretty serious podcast with a serious goal. But just because the goal is serious doesn't mean that every work of pop culture that I discuss here has to be super serious or profound or heavy. Now, even a comedy like Don't Look Up is in many ways a serious film, obviously. But today I'm going to talk about a couple of movies that in some ways, you could argue are not very serious at all because of the kinds of movies that they are. And by that, I mean that the works I'm going to discuss are quintessential popcorn movies. They're not trying to be high art. They're mainly just trying to entertain. Yet in their own way, it could be argued that the goals they're trying to achieve are serious as well. Or actually, not even. It, it's not that they're intentionally trying to achieve those goals. What I mean is that they can be used by others in serious ways. And I'll explain what I mean. And by the way, there will be no spoilers at all for any work discussed today. So today's episode is sort of a continuation of the last episode where I talked about the movie Don't Look Up and the question of how do we get people to look up? Meaning, how do we get people to take certain urgent problems, namely climate change, but also other crises such as COVID or more broadly speaking, collapse, which is a topic that many of you are probably interested in. And there are also other equally large problems that can contribute to or lead to collapse that I've either already talked about on other episodes or will talk about in future ones. But at the moment, we're going to focus on climate change. So let's continue answering this question of how do we get people to look up, to pay attention, to care, and most importantly, to take action. Last episode, I talked about what we can learn from psychology and evolutionary science. Today, I'm going to talk about some of the things we can learn from the genre of fiction known as cli-fi, which is a genre that's often but not always related to science fiction and that deals with climate-related issues. As with most genres, you can find examples in film, television, literature, comics, and in games. But today, I'm going to focus on film. Specifically, the period of cli-fi films starting around the mid to late 90s. With movies like Twister, which I mentioned and we'll talk more about, Waterworld, no comment, and The Arrival, which is not to be confused with the 2016 film starring Amy Adams. That one was, no, rather this one was released in 1996, starring Charlie Sheen, and it's called Arrival, like just Arrival, not The Arrival, like with the 2016 film. Anyway, during the 90s and 2000s, the cli-fi genre sometimes overlapped with the disaster movie genre. So you had films like Armageddon and Deep Impact, which were purely disaster films. And then you had a movie like The Day After Tomorrow, which was both. And of course, cli-fi wasn't unique to that era since climate change has 
obviously gotten worse. And so in the 2010s and continuing onwards, we have seen many interesting works of cli-fi cinema, such as Mad Max Fury Road, Snowpiercer, and Interstellar, to name a few, uh, all of which are really good films. Personally, I do have a problem with Interstellar that I may talk about in a future episode, but not because the quality of the filmmaking or the story, it's for a different reason. Anyway, we're going to focus today on the late 1990s because there are two works in particular from that era that I want to compare and contrast and also compare the both of them to a film like Don't Look Up. If you haven't yet listened to the episode on Don't Look Up, I do recommend listening to that one first because it goes in depth into a number of points that are very relevant in this episode, but that I'm not going to explain in detail. Okay, so from last time, one of the reasons that it's difficult for people to understand the dire urgency of climate change is that it's completely different from the kinds of threat that we as a species have evolved to recognize. Threats which are immediate, concrete, and unambiguous. And despite climate change being the single biggest threat to our collective survival, it has none of those qualities that humans are good at recognizing. So last episode, I talked about some ways to make climate change seem more concrete, immediate, and unambiguous in terms of the messaging and communication. And I was mainly talking about nonfiction communication, such as journalism, public service announcements, education, and things like that, as well as private conversations that you might have in your personal life with people who are either climate deniers or who believe in climate change, but think we have plenty of time. And that too is a problem. So today I want to talk about using fiction as a form of communication to achieve the same goal, because fiction is also communication. But among different mediums of fiction, when it comes to climate change, I think film and TV are especially vivid formats. I would probably also add video games, except that I personally haven't played any games in the cli-fi genre that I can recall at the moment. I've played post-apocalyptic and dystopian games that might be indirectly related to climate change or to collapse, but none that I can recall that simulate the experience of climate change itself. Whereas I have seen many films that portray climate change, not with scientific accuracy necessarily, but as I'm going to argue, when it comes to getting people to care, accuracy is of secondary priority. It's not that it's not important at all, but it's not the foremost urgency. The first priority is to get people emotionally invested because accuracy is about the rational brain, which I talked about last time, but the emotional brain is what makes people care about something and take action. And one of the most powerful ways to move the emotional brain is through story and narrative. Now, narrative can mean narrative figuratively, as in the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, such as, I am a good person, I'm a rational person, someone who follows the science, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or, I'm a defender of freedom and personal rights and, you know, things like that. Now, all of these things might be true for those people, but they are still narratives, because even a true story is still a story. So I talked about that kind of story or narrative last episode, but there's also story and narrative in the literal sense, as in a fictitious tale that begins with Once Upon a Time. And that's what I'm going to talk about today, which is using films and TV in the cli-fi genre to reach the emotional brains of people with regard to climate change. And I want to start by making the point that an effective story isn't necessarily 
in the eyes of everyone, going to be good art <laughs> and vice versa. So Don't Look Up would be an example of a movie that's a good story and it's good art, but I don't think it's going to be effective personally in changing anyone's mind. It's a terrific film for people who uh, believe climate change is an urgent problem and are frustrated that others don't feel the same. So it's very cathartic in that way. But for people who are resistant or in denial, it's only going to make them dig their heels in deeper. And it's only going to make scientists and people on the left side of the political spectrum seem even more untrustworthy in their eyes. And that's part of the problem we have right now in that science and scientists are seen as, you know, liberal, elitist, and condescending. Like, it doesn't matter if that's objectively true or not, although sometimes, I mean, often, actually, it may be. In today's multi-reality, it only matters that they are perceived that way. And honestly, a movie like Don't Look Up, as much as I personally love it, I think it does add to that sense that liberals and science are elitist and condescending. And this is why I actually think a lot of the criticism towards the film that I've seen is valid. Fans of the movie have been saying that critics don't get it, but I think it's all about who and what this movie is supposed to be for. If it's for people who believe in climate change, it's a great movie. If it's supposed to be for those who don't believe in climate change and the idea is to get them to change or open their minds, I think it would fail miserably. So what would be an example of a movie that could be good for those types of audiences? Well, I'm going to discuss two examples, The Day After Tomorrow from 2004 and Twister from 1996. They're both good examples, I think, in terms of potentially reaching the emotional brains of resistant audiences. Twister is ultimately going to be better for that purpose, I think, as I'm going to argue. And it can be a model for a kind of movie and story that we need more of right now, very, very urgently. As funny as it might sound for me to say that, we need artists and storytellers making more movies and stories like this. And we need educators and activists learning how to effectively harness and use those stories for teaching and outreach. And I'm going to explain why, so bear with me. First, let's start with The Day After Tomorrow. Now, in general, I quite dislike the films of Roland Emmerich. But I do like this one, and it's not because I think it's a great film. It's great cinema. I mean, I don't think it's a terrible film either. It's, it's a Hollywood blockbuster, so you got to approach it on that level. And as a blockbuster, it's not that bad. But I'm going to talk about, but I'm not, rather, I'm not going to talk about it as cinema. I'm going to talk about it as an example of communication that can take an amorphous concept like climate change and make it much more immediate and concrete so that the brains of certain resistant audiences can feel that this is a threat. If you watch The Day After Tomorrow, and especially if you're able to do so on either a movie screen or maybe on a relatively big TV screen with a decent sound system or headphones, perhaps. I mean, I've got to tell you, try experiencing this movie the way it was meant to be experienced and tell me that those scenes of destruction aren't at least a little bit scary. I mean, first, the effects hold up quite well by today's standards, and the sound design is excellent. So if you can just let the visual and sound elements wash over you, so to speak, not think about it too much or overanalyze it and be like, oh, God, this movie's ridiculous and whatever. If you just turn your brain off and let the sensory elements overtake you, 
then the film packs quite a punch, in my opinion. And honestly, I know that for some people, watching films is like an artistic or intellectual activity, and that's great. I do that too. But for a lot of people, that's not what watching a movie is about. Most of the time, they just want to turn their brains off and escape reality for a bit. And the cool thing is, with a movie like The Day After Tomorrow, you don't even have to be actively thinking or analyzing for it to be able to influence you. In fact, I think it often works better when you do turn your brain off. Again, it's not about cinema or aesthetics or art. I'm talking about changing people's hearts and minds about specific issues. And in fact, there's been research indicating that the day after tomorrow has had a significant impact on the risk perception of climate change for moviegoers. I'll link to that in the show notes. And there's a quote that I want to read from the author of the paper of that study, Anthony Lazarowitz. He writes, quote, We have only scratched the surface in the effort to understand the role of popular representations of risk. I'll just quickly read that again. We have only scratched the surface in the effort to understand the role of popular representations of risk. And this is from a paper entitled Before and After the Day After Tomorrow, a U.S. Study of Climate Change Risk Perceptions. So basically what he's saying is there's a lot of potential here and we have yet to really fully understand that potential. So this study was done back in 2004 and enough time has passed where I'd be really interested in seeing some updated research about how people uh, today might feel if they saw this movie especially if they see it, like I said, on the big screen or on a big TV with a good sound system, just because it makes the sensory input of that film much more vivid and dramatic. And since this movie came out over 15 years ago, I think there may be a fair amount of young people or just people in general who haven't seen it. And even more so for Twister, the other film I'll get to in a minute, because that came out even earlier. Even though we tend to associate younger generations as being more in tune with issues like climate change, let's not forget that a lot of young people are and have been growing up in environments where denial or skepticism is being handed down to them. There was this feature article in the New York Times a few years ago about this high school teacher who moved to a rural area in Ohio and was really having a hard time trying to teach his students about climate change because they would just shut him out because their families and environments had already turned them into adamant climate change deniers. So I'd be interested in knowing how young people in those kinds of environments would feel on an emotional level while watching a movie like The Day After Tomorrow. And when I say emotionally, I don't mean like, oh, this movie is so moving, I'm so touched. I mean, emotion in more of a primal way, like fear and anxiety, again, because of those vivid sounds and imagery. And even if they don't fully respond to the film at first with respect to climate change, you know, some movies can plant a seed inside you that grows over time in a subtle way. Like I said, I don't think fiction has to be scientifically accurate for it to be able to influence the emotional brain. Remember, the first step with any resistant audience is to first get them emotionally invested. And then, once they are, then you can try to appeal to the rational brain with scientific accuracy. 
Now, some people out there might say, you know, but I was using my rational brain from the very beginning. I always cared about science. So why can't other people, why do we have to do this whole roundabout method? And I say, no, actually, that's not the case. You see, what usually happens with those of us on the left is that our personal identities are linked to an emotional narrative about us being rational and scientific people, which is to say a narrative about us being smart people. So for us as well, make no mistake, our personal identities are also linked to a narrative or narratives, plural. It's just a different one. And because of this system of tribal semantics in which our tribal emblem or totem is science, then a rival tribe is of course going to feel revulsion for that totem and they will thus adopt a different totem or emblem. So for them, we need to target their emotional brain in a different way because their identities are not connected to a narrative necessarily about being smart or rational. It may be connected to other things like truth-seeking, independence, uh, seeing past the lies, and various other possible things like that. So we need to motivate people with fictional stories that don't threaten their personal identities and narratives. And then we worry about scientific accuracy after. But the emotion has to come first, not the other way around. And unfortunately, with fiction and movies, the things that make for compelling fiction don't always make for good science. And someone who really understood this well was Michael Crichton, who in interviews has talked about this very issue. But I'm going to put Michael aside for a minute and come back to him and just quickly say one thing, uh, one more thing about scientific accuracy in the day after tomorrow, which is that according to climate scientist Nicholas Bohr's, the basic premise of day after tomorrow is not only plausible, it's actually already starting to happen. It just wouldn't happen overnight and, and as dramatically as, as it does in the film, but the basic premise is sound and legit. So through the combination of number one, the power of story and narrative reaching the emotional brain, and number two, using vivid sensory stimuli to make a vague amorphous threat feel much more immediate and concrete. A movie like The Day After Tomorrow is able to reach some people who might otherwise be resistant to messages about climate change. Now contrast this to Don't Look Up, which is an amazing film, but it's not going to convince anyone of anything. So we need different stories for different people. However, here's the weakness of a film like The Day After Tomorrow. One of the common complaints about this movie, it's that it's a piece of liberal propaganda trying to ram a liberal agenda down people's throat. Now, this movie is as Hollywood as you can get, but for some people, the mere mentioning of climate can lead them to dismiss it. So funny enough, some people would dismiss that movie in the same way that they, they might dismiss Don't Look Up as liberal propaganda. So it falls in that same trap. So then if in our current hyperpolarized times, if even a quintessential Hollywood blockbuster like The Day After Tomorrow can be triggering for some people because of the political associations, then what movie does have the ability to reach those people? Well, I submit that it could be a movie like Twister, and I'll explain why. So Twister was a 1996 film written by Michael Crichton we come back to Michael now, directed by Jan DeBont about a team of storm chasers led by two scientists played by Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt. 
Now, here's where Twister can go places and reach people in ways that the day after tomorrow can't, and certainly in ways that Don't Look Up can't. There's nothing political about it. That's its strength. At least not in an obvious way, there's nothing political. And there's nothing really that people could point to to accuse it of being liberal. In a way, it's kind of not even a movie about a natural disaster. At the heart of it, it's really a monster movie, which is symbolized in that whole sequence um, at the drive-in. And playing on the big screen is The Shining, a horror movie. It's not a spoiler, by the way, don't worry. And this is the technique that filmmakers love to use. And if you pay attention to the aesthetics of that entire sequence, especially the sound design, which is brilliant, I recommend a good pair of headphones uh, to listen to it. Man, that is quintessential monster movie filmmaking. And what do monsters evoke? Fear. And fear can be, if used judiciously and not used indiscriminately, it can be a strong motivator. Evolutionarily, it's one of the strongest motivators, but it does have to be used carefully because there are some real uh, downsides or possible downsides as well. For in-depth analysis of this, I recommend a book called How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference by Rebecca Huntley, which I mentioned in my episode on foundation. And this book makes a great companion to the one I talked about last episode called Don't Even Think About It by George Marshall. And what the research seems to indicate is that fear has a role to play, but too much fear without hope leads to paralysis and denial. But a little bit of it combined with hope and or humor can be very effective, which is where, again, stories can play a role in presenting vivid and alarming visions of climate change, but tempered by hope and the ultimate victory of the heroes at least most of the time in like Hollywood films. So coming back to Twister, even though both The Day After Tomorrow and Don't Look Up combine fear with hope and or humor, as I mentioned, they're both limited by the political associations of climate change with liberal politics. So they can't get past people's defenses. A film like Twister, because it has no such political associations, can be equally enjoyed by everyone and Yes, people can be scared by it because, like I said, it's a disaster movie, but it's also a monster movie and a very well-made one. And there is also plenty of humor and there's hope because the heroes win. And there's also a little romance between the two main protagonists. So a movie like this can effectively touch people's brains and bypass their political defenses and make at least a certain aspect of climate change, in this case, natural disasters, feel more vivid and concrete. Now, here's where we get to the part about making science fun again. Now, a lot of people might say, oh, what do you mean? Science has always been fun. And, you know, I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. That might be true for you. But I assure you, it's not true for a lot of people for various reasons. So it's not just climate change that has this negative political association. It's science itself overall, which is so unfortunate because obviously science is for everyone, right? But it definitely has a public relations problem. 
And unfortunately, I do think that some of this has been exacerbated by certain kinds of messaging in the media and by those of us on the left. You know, we love to claim science as our own, you know, as a sign. Again, it's a totem, an emblem of our own intelligence. And this, this just exacerbates this association of science as being liberal, elitist, and class-driven. I don't have enough time to get into a deeper discussion about some of the ways in which the practice of science, if not science itself, can, in fact, be class-driven, especially technology. But science itself obviously doesn't belong to anyone. It's for all people. And that used to be better understood. But somewhere along the way, we somehow lost sight of that. So once again, we need stories to come to the rescue with damage control or uh, better PR and portray science in such a way that it's not the domain of urban liberals, but for rural conservatives as well. And Twister does this very well as represented by the character of Joe Thornton, played by Helen Hunt, who comes from a rural working class background. I don't know that her family was necessarily conservative, but imagery and association is powerful. And we could argue about whether farmers who own their farms are technically working class. But I mean, culturally, they're definitely a lot closer to that than they are to, say, the urban middle class. But Joe Thornton does not feel like an elite scientist the way a lot of other scientist characters do, say someone like Dana Scully from The X-Files, who does fit the mold of an urban intellectual scientist. So I think we need more stories and characters like Twister and like Joe Thornton who play against that type, okay, and who present an alternative model of science and scientists. Now, here's where I get to the screenwriter of Twister, which was Michael Crichton. Now, I feel ambivalent about bringing up Michael Crichton in a discussion about climate change. Because in his later years, uh, Crichton actually became a very vocal climate change skeptic. And that was unfortunate. However, I'm making a different kind of point here, which is that when it comes to science overall, Michael Crichton has probably done more to popularize science and the idea or the mythology of science than just about any other major pop culture figure. I mean, he's probably accomplished that through Jurassic Park alone. I mean, just try telling me that you saw or read Jurassic Park as a kid and didn't want to be a paleontologist. Not only that, the entire Jurassic Park franchise single-handedly changed the field of paleontology. True story. That's the power of pop culture. You can't match that power. The sword of mythology will shatter the sword of scientific accuracy every time. And Crichton himself knew this. In interviews, he talked about how good science and good stories were, in, in a lot of ways, fundamentally incompatible. But again, I say, so what? Let people fall under the spell of the idea of science first, and then teach them about scientific accuracy. Jurassic Park has literally made people become paleontologists. Twister has literally made people become meteorologists. True story, really. I'm going to link to some of those articles that mention that in the show notes. Michael Crichton had a way of making science seem fun and of making scientists seem cool and sexy without being elitist. 
Ellie Sattler, Laura Dern's character in Jurassic Park, is also, I think, like that. I don't know what her background is canonically, her socioeconomic background, but to me, she does seem to have a similar vibe as Helen Hunt's character in Twister. And Ian Malcolm, Jeff Goldblum's character, um, actually does have kind of that urban liberal vibe, but I mean, who cares? It's Jeff Goldblum, right? He's cool as hell. Just make Jeff Goldblum play every male scientist character and we'll have no problems. And so in terms of using the right kinds of stories and characters to communicate the universal humanism and value of science, I think storytellers today could learn a lot from studying the work of Michael Crichton. But then at some point, we are going to arrive at the question of, okay, so people understand the threat of natural disasters. They're emotionally invested. How do we go from that or from making them, you know, perceive science as being fun and cool to actually getting them to come on board and take action? And honestly, I'm not sure yet. I haven't thought it through that far just yet. I'm only one person. Something like this would take many people coming together, receive funding, and to basically just spend all their time figuring it out. But my initial thoughts would be that this would have to be a multi-stage process. It's not like people are going to watch Twister and they say like, oh yeah, I've been converted. Yeah, sign me up for the green movement. It would be a slow, gradual transition. And Again, resist the temptation to bring in things like climate change or renewable energy, green policy too quickly. You know, stay with disaster awareness and preparation for a while. Let people become emotionally invested in that. And then, and then let's think about how to take them to the next level. Like I said, this is the kind of difficult question that needs to be a collective effort for figuring it out. Anyone else there wants to pay me so I can quit my day job and form a think tank to figure this out, well, you know where to find me. In the meantime, I'm putting out a call and a challenge for storytellers out there who want to or have thought about writing cli-fi fiction. Obviously, you can write it however the heck you want to write it. It's your story. But if the idea of reaching resistant audiences sounds appealing to you, then something to possibly think about is how to tell a cli-fi story in a way that can bypass people's political defenses. As I've argued in this episode, I don't think you'll be able to do that by making the story overtly be about climate change or by using certain kinds of language. If you want to reach resistant people, consider making it be about something that's related to climate change. But there are other things you can connect it to uh, like Twister does, for example, natural disasters. And in conjunction with this, you can also consider creating scientist characters who resonate a different kind of vibe that resistant audiences can relate to and admire and maybe want to emulate in the case of younger audiences. Characters such as Joe Thornton in Twister or Laura Dern's character in Jurassic Park. I'm also putting out a call for teachers, educators, and organizations to think about how to use the kinds of stories and characters I've discussed today to indirectly reach people with regards to climate change and climate action. Obviously, one movie is not going to do it. This is a process that will take patience and thoughtful strategizing with a fully thought out curriculum, if you will, in which we gradually win over people's hearts first and then their rational minds using a combination of both 
fiction and nonfiction messaging and communication. So that's all I have time for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode about Twister, Cli-Fi, and Michael Crichton. Until next time, I'm the pop mythologist, and this is the end. So look out for those flying cows. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Please subscribe, and if you're willing, share one of these episodes on social media. If you're sharing on Twitter, go ahead and tag us at the n underscore podcast or at pop mythology, and I'll be sure to retweet you. And if your chosen podcast platform allows reviews, like Apple Podcasts, I invite you to leave a review as well. Thank you.